Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, once again, we are not talking about the land. I'm really sorry about this. I swear next time we will get to it. Um, as it turned out, what you are about to hear after this little intro just by me is a discussion Dad and I had that we originally planned to do as a bonus episode, but then it went on for almost the full length amount of time and Dad thought it was so good. And also he hasn't quite finished reading the things I asked him to read for the land episode. So we decided to bring it to you as another regular episode. So sorry again to keep your hopes um, raised and then dashed again and again. But this one coming up now is on basically is it propaganda all the way up and all the way down and if so how on earth do we bear witness as believers in this um, degraded environment of speech so please enjoy what follows and really really next time the land Hello, listeners. We are bringing you a bonus episode, we think. This is um, actually a little bit experimental, and we are recording this conversation, not entirely sure if we are going to release it. So if you're hearing it, then we decided to go through with it. But... um, So the reason is because I haven't fully told dad what we're talking about because I wanted this to be as much as possible a spontaneous conversation, and that's part of the point of the exercise here. So dad, um, we had we talked a little bit about this over the summer when we saw each other in person, but um, the, the urgency of this topic grew on me as the summer went by and as I've come back to Japan and have been ruminating on it. Um, and so I guess the large question we're going to be exploring here is in a degraded environment of um, media and... Um, press, is it possible to speak non-propagandistic speech anymore? I know that sounds really over the top, but um, uh, will you hear me out on this? <laughs> yeah, I'll listen. Go ahead. I'm, 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 I'm on my guard, though, that what you're saying might be propaganda. Well, I might. I don't. I don't actually know. Like, and I mean, I. I think that's actually the problem. Like, it. It could be like an extremely clever move on my part to do this kind of ah shucks. I'm just trying to speak the truth thing because I'm so disturbed by the propaganda, but actually I'm setting myself up in like some you know, uh, really diabolical way to be like, well, she must really be speaking the truth. You know, it's kind of like I used to believe Google when it when I heard that its motto was "Don't be evil," and I was like. Wow, good for them, a big corporation whose guiding principle is don't be evil. Well, what a sucker, right? (laughs) It does pretty evil stuff. So, you know, I I guess I have to say fair warning, you know, like clearly my wanting to discuss how to speak truth publicly is partly wanting to at least appear as a truthful person in public. Um, And I, as far as I can tell... (laughs) inside myself, I do actually want to be truthful. But as uh, St. Paul said, just because I don't know of any accusation against myself doesn't mean I am thereby innocent. Right. So, well, that's a, that's a sticky, sticky thicket of problems there. I think we're going to have to be patiently unwrapping these uh, layers here one by one. Um, I mean, basically what you're asking theologically is the question of truth, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we have a famous episode in the Gospel of John where Pontius Pilate says to Jesus, bearing witness to the truth, you know, rhetorically, what is truth in a kind of cynical, realistic way? 
so the problem that you put your finger on is not exactly um, uh, um, an exclusively modern or current one. It's kind of a perennial one. And if we take the witness of the Gospel of John even further, uh, it is the devil who has been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And lies are always the pretext for murder, and murder always seeks the justification uh, of its behavior through telling a lie. Uh, so, yeah, there has been theologically an assault on truth uh, uh, from the outset, from from the Garden of Eden, I suppose you could say. Yeah, it's, it's you know, just the particular circumstances that we live in um, as we are dealing with the effects of all our technologies and how they alter us. And, and that also is a perennial human problem. We are always altered by the things that we invent. But the sheer multiplicative power of technologies now to distribute text and speech and video on unprecedented scales and also to fake it and to generate it out of, you know, Right. Um, you know, with, with bots and um, an AI generation of, of news <laughs> and controlling narratives and, you know, deplatforming and alternate platforms and dark webs. Um, it just there, there's a kind of um, ubiquity and urgency, uh, I think, of just of the scale that our um, more uh, tribal and personal uh, um, humanity is once again very ill-equipped to cope with, um, including me. <laughs> Well, I think that's right. Uh, and I, uh, when I look at it from the secular perspective of these, this uh, problematic that you just so nicely laid out for us, I, I think it could quickly lead you to despair. Um, it's technology out of control, technology that's taken on a life of its own, technology whose consequences cannot be fully predicted, technology that is altering our humanity as we speak, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, when I just read an incredible article, Sarah, uh, on Substack uh, by an author, I think her name was Susan Weiss, about the effect of social media on young girls. And uh, Oh, yeah, I read that one too. Yeah. I, I sent that to you, didn't I? Yeah. That, yeah. that was just devastating in terms of uh, of what it's doing to the psyches of these adolescent girls. Yeah, I think you could call it like sociogenic illness, which is that, um, you know, some some vague sense of, of not being well in the world. And, you know, from a Christian perspective, everybody feels that way. Um, then suddenly finds this massive community of people who affirm you, but then without anyone doing it deliberately, push you down the path of being ever more unwell, because that's where your validation comes from. And so this effort effort to get like a truthful acknowledgement, I do not feel well in my in my heart, mind, and skin, turns into a diabolical set of lies that sap the life out of people. It's very frightening. And it's also it, it's in conjunction, Sarah, with 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 the currency today of identity politics. But this is a perverse turn. I mean, a, a truly perverse turn of identity politics that uh, adolescent young women coming into uh, adulthood are so uncomfortable with themselves and with their bodies and with their roles in society, um, and they don't see them fitting into any of the identities on market. 
And so they latch upon the identity of I am a sick person, and they find validation for themselves by marketing their public image as a sick person and, and believing in themselves as sick people. Uh, and, you know, this is identity politics, politics taking a nosedive uh, straight into self-destruction, as far as I can see. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just just one of many such frightening trends. So uh, so let's let's take this to our own our own domain of of theology and, you know, being public and professional Christians, as well as, of course, private and devout. But you're just going to have to take our word for that one, because all you can see is the public appearance. Right. And um so there, there is like so. Just to take like the history of American evangelicalism. There's always been a great enthusiasm, especially for communication technologies. Of course, this is rooted back in the printing press. Like you and I were always taught that the printing press is what made the Lutheran Reformation possible. And isn't that wonderful? And we're real sorry about the Thirty Years' War. But basically, you know, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's great that the word could get out. And what you see in a, especially American Protestantism is this eagerness to adopt every new form, you know, like newspapers and um, and tracts and pamphlets and then radio and then TV and then more recently the Internet podcasts like we're doing, um, YouTube, TikTok, everything. And the principle has always been very simplistic, which is as long as it gets the word of God out there and there, you, you never, as long as the message gets out, the medium can never be questioned. And, you know, there's been lots of, of, um, tech criticism. Neil Postman is, is most famous for that. Uh, and, uh, and Marshall McLuhan for calling attention to the, the medium is also the message. And that makes a difference, you know, and it was already with, with radio worship services that people were saying, well, does it really count if you're not there in person? And, you know, more recently, we've had actual so-called virtual communions um, taking place. So, um, what, so anyway, that's just a fact that that's out there. Um, and I certainly don't share the naive view that as long as the word of God get, gets out there, it doesn't matter what collateral damage is done to um, integrity or young people's souls or um, the message itself being deformed by the medium. But my concern is not that specifically, because I can't do anything about it, but it actually does raise for me, just for me personally, the 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 hard integrity question of like, can I, can anyone bear witness in the, you know, Johannine sense that you referred to in such a propagandistic environment? Is there any way that my own even um, best intentioned attempts at truthful speech and bearing witness to my Lord how can it not sound propagandistic and like me trying to establish my market niche? And of course, it is a little blurry because like I do have a very small, you know, LLC that I run for my my writing and, and books and, and other activities. It, it is a business. I As you, I've said before, I don't have a problem with business per se, but it's more just this feeling that everything is so calculated now and so stagey and even authenticity is stagey and even vulnerability is stagey. So. <laughs> even sickness is stagey. Right. And so, but on the other hand, of course, 
to fall silent entirely, um, you know, I, I don't know, may, maybe falling silent and only speaking to the people that you meet with in person is a, a kind of appropriate discipline. But then when the, the the fact is that everybody is attending to media generated by people they don't know personally, then I do feel this like, well, you know, it's better to at least have something good out there. I'm, I'm, this is one of three things that I am stuck on that I wanted to explore with you. So right, yeah. what do you think of that first one? Well, I, I think that the problem that it's propaganda all the way up and all the way down is as old as the problem of the Johannine devil, who's been a liar from the beginning. So the problem is not theologically new. The, and Paul, there's passages in the Apostle Paul where he talks about others who proclaim uh, Christ out of impure motives. Uh, and he's aware oh, yeah. of the fact that there are pseudo-apostles and, and, and imposters and so forth. The Johannine literature is also aware of, uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of those who um, are bearing false witness within the community and so forth. So these problems are, are really not new. Now, to, to, to get at the problem, I think, here uh, in the first place uh, is to understand that Christian witness or confession is not self-generated. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, the whole idea of witness in John especially, but also in Paul, is that you are arrested and put on the witness stand. It's not that you're volunteering, you're out there in public, you know, um, uh, invading people's privacy, thumping them on the head with the Bible. Or when I was uh, young in New York City, there were uh, radical, rad pastors, as they call them nowadays, who went on the New York City subway with a communion to distribute. I mean, just obnoxious behavior, I think, in a way, <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a, a very self-deceived way of self-promotion or self-marketing uh, and so forth. And not true witness at all. A true witness occurs when you are put on the dock, when you are put, when you get in trouble for being a Christian and you have to give an account of the hope that's in you. That means to say that it's not because of your obnoxious, invasive behavior, but it's because of your living as a disciple of Jesus in the world that people then uh, say, what is going on with you? Why are you doing what you're doing? And so forth. Then authentic witness comes out. And it's precisely because it's the spirit in this way who gives the opportunity. And it's not you mixing up self-aggrandizement with a pious desire to bear witness. That seems like a really hard line to discern, even in one's own heart. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's yeah. I, I think that it is that is a hard line to discern, and I would also acknowledge that there may be occasions in which cowardice uh, causes silence rather than the uh, taking the opportunity to bear an authentic witness to Christian truth. Uh, uh, sure, uh, the, but the, what other part of the Christian life is not challenged in those ways? <laughs> I suppose. So, I mean, then is the, I mean, neither of us are in jail. 
And yet we we put out this podcast with our conversations about theology, you know, and it's it's rooted in the authentic relationship that we have with each other. But of course, you know, it's not every conversation that we have with each other. There are things that we omit that we talk about privately, including theologically and ecclesiastically. Um, so I, I'm, is some of the, the problem is we don't have any more a proper sense of what is actually private and public. I mean, when you were characterizing some of the, the negative forms of, of so-called witness, you you said they were obnoxious and invasive. And um, so this, this is not um, – this podcast is something people have to opt into listening to, not something that forces its way upon them, like um, public service announcements in the train station, like I have to hear all the time. <laughs> Right, or, um... No, that's exactly right. And it's also the case that we do this uh, uh, not for pecuniary gain. <laughs> I mean, this is a lot of work putting out this podcast like this, and neither you or I are making any money off of it. And the little bit of donations you get hardly pay for the expenses involved. Am I right? Right. But I mean, if it if it did well and we got more money, would that invalidate it somehow? I don't know. No, I, we're, we're talking I about really our motives. No, but we're talking yeah, our about motives. our motives, oh, motives and intentions, you know. And right, okay. and sure, yeah. and and I think if 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 it, this became wildly successful and you were raking in the dough, you and I would figure out ways to expand the ministry rather than uh, to enrich ourselves, rather than to buy the gold toilet seat like uh, Joyce Meyer famously got with her donations. Right. See, I wanted to switch to the public-private thing here for a minute because you brought this up. And uh, I think a, a book that I've recently engaged with and find very stimulating is Sarah Coakley, Anglican theologian. Um, what is it? Uh, the Trinity Sexuality and the Trinity. I'm for, forgetting the title. Uh, um, yeah, I know what book you're talking about, though. I haven't read it, but I've always heard people praise it very highly. I think you would really like it if you read it, because uh, her argument is, and I deeply agree with this, is that theology has to be rooted. Now, these are kind of Greek patristic and Anglican terminology, which some Lutherans will misunderstand, but I'm going to use her language. Uh, theology must be rooted in an ascetic discipline, uh, particularly of prayer and contemplation. And if there, it, it, if theology is not rooted in ascetic self-denial, uh, self-purification, uh, and that occurring pr primarily through prayer and contemplation, of course, she would say in response to the Eucharist and, and, and et cetera, uh, just so Lutherans out there don't get overly nervous at what I'm saying. Um, um, uh, but what she's talking about is to be a proper theologian. You, no, no matter how smart and how erudite you are, if you are not existentially engaged with the long, painful road uh, to entering into the presence of the Holy God, by grace alone, but nevertheless grace that is like a consuming fire that burns away the chaff in order to bring us into that uh, a presence of the Holy One, and so forth. Uh, you cannot do theology well. And then she makes arguments, I think, that are very good, um, that uh, one of the reasons the modern church is so 
uh, apoplectic about sexuality is that it doesn't understand how desire must be primarily directed to God as its one true object. Uh, so that she has this whole um, uh, Augustinian uh, 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 interpretation of the problem of desire, and it's a profound critique. It flips Freud on his head. It's not that the sex drive is primary and sublimation and religion and theology are all secondary phenomena off the basic sex drive. It's the other way around. The desire for God is primary, of which sexual desire is a, is a manifestation and an embodiment of it in particular ways. And that, would she argues, would give us a brand new way of thinking uh, about all the uh, difficult problems people have today with sexuality. Wow, that that is really insightful. I, I'm gonna, yeah, I've always meant to. I'll have to move it higher up the list. So, so then, how does this relate to the public-private distinction? Then, well, I, I mean, you know, prayer. Your prayer life is one of the most uh, intensely personal uh, things that a person engages in. Um, particularly when we're talking about what you take into your prayer closet from the public uh, celebration of word and sacrament, the Eucharistic fellowship and so forth. Uh, when I'm riding on my tractor and singing a hymn to myself or something like that, or falling asleep at night recounting the blessings of the day. And, you know, you get into these things that, you know, you don't want to throw such pearls before swine. You want to protect what's intimate and private and not expose it uh, uh, to public uh, scrutiny and potential ridicule or abuse. So I think there is a realm of privacy. Uh, but of course, for the Christian, the realm of privacy is the conscience, uh, quorum Deo, the conscience bound uh, to God by justification and faith in the knowledge uh, that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's how the Christian anthropology should construe the private life. I, I mean, I think this is the, the true and proper sense of, of individualism, that finally not everything about your soul is for public consumption. It does not belong to your demographic. It doesn't belong to the marketplace. It truly is yours alone and yours in the presence of God. And... Um, you know, maybe uh, whether it's because people have have no real God and so they have no sense of their their right to their own souls, or because they have been hornswoggled into thinking every private thing must be expressed to bear witness, which thereby cheapens and corrupts it. Um, yeah, maybe maybe part of the the antidote is first of all is allowing people to have back that private space you know along these lines and, and this is going to bridge into my my next topic of concern um I, I've been a, on a few occasions to churches that um, in the prayers of the church section, um, there's sort of like an open invitation for anyone in the congregation to, you know, speak aloud their prayer requests. And I, I don't mean like naming people's names like that, that I'm, I'm pretty used to, but like, you know, sort of like the, the pastor will have a petitionary topic and then invite people to like say stuff. And I understand the... The good motivation behind that is 
to, you know, encourage like this common shared fellowship of prayer. But what I've seen actually happen in practice is that people say the things that they're supposed to say, like the things in the news <laughs> or the the things that correspond to their ideological location in, a, you know, in the American landscape. And I don't hear that when people just utter names, I think that's authentic. But when I hear them utter those kinds of petitions or concerns, they seem very performative to me and very much not what is truly at the heart of their concern. And somehow I feel like that actually is the wrong way of trying to encourage prayer fellowship among Christians, that it pretends that we are publicly expressing private concerns, but actually what we're doing is publicly expressing publicly approved concerns, and the private ones are, um, they're not, I don't know, they're, they're somehow even invalidated because they're, we're pretending that the public ones are actually the private ones or something like well, that. Do, yeah, do you follow I, I, me? I, Yes, I, th I think what you're saying is that some people use the public prayers of the church to do their propaganda, and you find that offensive. Yes, yes, there you go. But I don't think I, I, I don't think it's um, so often. These things are not from from evil motivations. I don't think they know, <laughs> and I don't no. think the pastors are, have have been given reason to trust that um, the silent prayer that people do alongside the petitions really counts. And it is actually prayer fellowship in public, even if people aren't saying things aloud in the same way. And maybe it's just that Lutherans are really bad at it. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, my, my darker thought is that such people in the congregation have learned to pray that way from the examples of their pastors who use the pulpit to voice their own propaganda rather than, uh, in a disciplined way, preach the gospel uh, to the context in which the congregation lives. But we've talked about that many times, and we, I don't want to get off on that topic. I wanted to mention, just go back for a moment to what you were saying about um, uh, not exposing uh, one's private life. I think that immediately made me start thinking of a book like Augustine's Confessions, or Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain, uh, which was actually modeled on Augustine's Confessions. Uh, th these are examples of people who have uh, uh, made the decision to share publicly their intensely personal uh, and otherwise private uh, life with God. And so the whole form of Augustine's Confessions are the genre is prayer to God. Everything he recounts in the book is recounted in the form of a, a extended prayer to God. Um, and he just chooses to make that public. Why? Because he feels that the journey of his soul is illustrative and can be helpful for others. And I just want to say that there's a place for that kind of thing. If you're in a position of maturity and strength, uh, the way that Augustine was, and not neediness and uh, 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 a desperate attempt to make yourself recognized by spilling your guts. Uh, but Augustine instead shows us how um, a mature Christian can look back at his life's journey and remember the dark nights of the soul and the, and the ups and downs of his inner life 
and can share them in ways that are profoundly helpful. I taught Augustine's Confessions to 18-year-olds for 20 years at Roanoke College, and my colleagues, you know, full of their gender ideologies, would say, ooh, how can you, uh, how can the students stand to read that? And I said, the guy was full of worldly ambition. The guy was uh, the guy was in Rome. He was a huge success. He was at the top of the world. He could have had anything he wanted, and his soul was sick until he gave it all up to become a Christian. And when the 18-year-olds in today's America read that story, man, they could identify with it. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it really matters that the second half of the book, which no one likes as much, is all about memory, because Augustine is writing this when it's it's very far behind him, and like you said, he's mature and he is sorting through his memories. This is not, you know, live tweeting your moment by moment mood and its ups and yeah. downs, um, and it's very hard to see the whole story. And a, a great deal of his story is trying to figure out what the whole story of his life actually is, and that is better seen in repose at a distance than than in the the thick of the pain. Okay, so let me let me bridge from here then. So I, I told this vague story about hearing petitions <laughs> that didn't seem very authentic to me in church. And so this raises a larger question, and I'm going to have to talk even more around it and even more vaguely. But um, I know that you know what I mean, Dad, and I bet listeners know what I mean, which is that there are all kinds of narratives about what it's really like that are very popular in all kinds of American discourse, left, right, center, everything. You know, we all have our stories about how it is. And, um, you know, the slightest reflection shows you that every every individual human's experience is limited. You can't possibly know what everything is like. But you do know what you have experienced, though you might be bad at interpreting what you've experienced. So we, we talked all this stuff out in our two episodes on experience. But here's here's the, the problem for me is um, because of the position I'm in, um, I get a chance to observe all sorts of aspects of church life and congregational life and pastoral life. And I see a lot of things and am entrusted with a lot of things. And they definitely form my perception of reality. And a lot of them have had kind of a blinders drop from the eye sort of effect on me. And, um, you know, in this podcast, we, we, we generalize often, you know, and we conceptualize and make sweeping things uh, about what we're seeing, but they're rooted for me, as I know for you and actual experiences. The problem is those sweeping statements or generalities are not convincing without the stories to back them up. But the stories that back them up are entrusted to me, whether, you know, officially in private or I just happen to be there. And so to report in any detail on things that I see by definition exposes people to the public eye, to scrutiny that they didn't know they were coming into, and sometimes to their real vulnerabilities and pains or delusions and follies. <laughs> and I I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I don't ever want to be the person who does that. But I also see that by not contributing in more compelling detail and authenticity what I see going on than all these convenient but false narratives that 
control the discourse go unchallenged. And all I can say is, well, I don't think it works that way, but I'm not willing to like come forth with exhibit A, B, and C about why I think what you're describing is actually BS. So I don't know what to do <laughs> about this too. And I'm sure everyone's really intrigued, like, what has she seen? What does she know that she's not telling us? And I'm sorry, I'm going to have to disappoint you. But I'm trying to figure out, like, can I can I go on and say and critique things in generalities? Do I just have to shut up about it? How, how long does that go on before the loonies are running the asylum? Well, uh, I'll go you one better. I already referenced the model of the Apostle Paul's be. Uh, comportment to these issues. But how about Jesus? Um, when Jesus wants to uh, expose um, these kinds of difficult, these kinds of problematics without naming names, what does he do? He tells parables. He tells parables. He tells par- parables. And that's a way of talking uh, about what's going, what's really going on without naming names and exposing people unjustly or unfairly. Now, parables can be conflictual, you know, and they perceive that he told the parable against him and went out to conspire how to put him to death, Jesus in the temple, right? So parables, uh, uh, you know, according to my my, uh, apocalyptic inclinations, Parables are apocalyptic acts of war, uh, spiritual war, I, I hasten to add, not literal war, uh, but they are. They, they are ways of uh, helping people. Uh, think of Nathan, the prophet, going to King David and telling the story, yeah, and thou art the man. You know, and of course, the since you're not Nathan and I'm not... Uh, uh, Jesus or, or the Apostle Paul, you know, we have to tell we have to tell parables. That's part of our calling as theologians and preachers. We ha- we can tell parables, uh, but we have to leave it to the Spirit to bring about the conviction, um, and trust that the parable will do its work of exposing the hip- hypocrisy or the evil. Dad, that's amazing. I can't believe this was staring me in the face and I didn't see it, which just goes to show how how blind we are. But you've actually just told me why I write fiction. <laughs> right. No, that's right. I know. Yeah, well, right. okay. All right, listeners, here is a completely bald-faced and unashamed advertisement, which is, if you would like to see what I just realized now are my apocalyptic parables, please check out Pearly Gates and Protons and Fluorons, available at thornbushpress.com. <laughs> Believe it or not, I was not building up to that. That just came like a bolt out of the blue. Of course, that's why we tell parables, because we can't expose people and we won't expose people, right? Right, right. And it's it's not marketing all the way down. It's marketing as the occasion provides. Now, okay. uh, I want (laughs) to kind of draw this towards a conclusion by talking about your, your, you in connection to this, you raise the issue of rebuttal. Is rebuttal even mm. possible? Uh, and so right, forth. that's my third area of concern, right? Yeah, yeah. I want to say a couple of things about this. I think in theology, rebuttal takes the form of apologetics. And it can take the uh, two different forms of apologetics. One is a very soft apologetic um, 
uh, George Lindbeck called it ad hoc apologetics, which is the simple intellectual virtue of correcting the record where egregiously uh, uh, false statements, hostile statements have been made. And one calmly and clearly points out the error. Uh, uh, and it's not a question of persuading the liar, but it is a question of um, uh, instructing the public. That's kind of a soft apologetic, uh, ad hoc apologetic. And I think that's a, an intellectual virtue. Uh, it's an intellectual virtue when uh, obvious untruths are being spoken, that one says, what about this? What about that? Come on. Uh, uh, that's an overstatement. That's an exaggeration. That's a half-truth, etc. Another kind of theology is what you might even call a systematic apologetics. And this is where theology slides into sheer propaganda. I think of the fundamentalist uh, preacher who wrote a book on the resurrection with the title, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And this this is just so cheesy. It's unbelievably cheesy to begin with. But any kind of approach in which your whole posture is to persuade people that you're not a fool or that you're not a fundamentalist or that you're not a liberal or whatever it is, you know, it's all self-serving. And it's not has nothing to do with a reasoned defense of faith in Jesus Christ. And a reasoned defense of Jesus Christ is, as we said earlier, is when you get in good trouble uh, for being a Christian. That's the occasion. So, how do, how do we, how do we, in this climate, propagandistic climate, Sarah, how do we uh, practice the intellectual virtues? And I think certain basic truths of Christian anthropology should instruct us. First of all, as Luther says in the Catechism, the Holy Spirit brings us into the church where the Spirit can preach the gospel to us. So, we should not be out there marketing Christianity in the modalities uh, that are so common in our culture. We should rather be bringing folks into the church where they can be exposed to the gospel. Now, I mean church in a broad sense. I mean the community of faith uh, that can exist in a number of different forms. But the point is, is that... Uh, Luther's point is that what the Spirit does is he puts you in Christian community, and that is the context in which the gospel can be preached and heard and understood properly. That would be one point. Then when it comes to these other issues that you were talking about, about people lying and, and or their heads being full of propaganda and they can't tell the difference, Christian anthropology ought to teach us a number of things. Everyone is interested. Everyone is motivated and interested by self-concern, which can easily slide into sinful egocentrism. But it's simply a fact. Everyone is speaking from some interested point of view. And that can be the most objective scientist in the world who nevertheless has a scientific reputation at stake 
in his or her scientific work. Everyone is interested. Number two, everyone is finite. No one sees the world comprehensively. Everyone has blind spots that are uh, determined by your place and time and space and society and culture and history. And thirdly, no one is credible if they do not themselves voluntarily uh, mention the apparently contrary evidence and deal with it. If you just sovereignly ignore evidence that goes against what you're arguing, that is the practice of an intellectual bully, of a tyrant who's buffaloing you and is suppressing knowledge of contrary evidence. Whereas intellectual virtue always says, now let me acknowledge the, the, these possible objections to what I'm saying, and then patiently persuades uh, that the evidence uh, can be satisfied by the argument. So all of that sounds fantastic and what I would like to abide by, but here's where this is also <laughs> problematic for me, because um, what do you do when it is precisely within the public and apparent boundaries of the community of faith that you encounter people spouting folly at best, self-deception and delusion in the middle term, and the outright will to destruction at the far extreme? And what do you do in a culture where people are quick to assign um, martyr status to anyone who is criticized for any reason whatsoever, so your rebuttals automatically validate the person or the, let's say rather, the ideas um. that you are so distressed by. And I am thinking of people who have become very prominent in public precisely because of the hysterical negative attention paid to them. So, um, <laughs> you know, and I, I mean, just to say some of my own like ongoing, you know, weighing in my conscience for the almost 11, almost 12 years that I was editor of Lutheran Forum, I, I published actually very few critical articles by myself or others. I really strove to um, focus on the positive vision, the good, the the treasures of our faith and our Lutheran heritage. And I just did not want to give a lot of airtime to the, the stupidity and self-destruction all around me. I mean, sometimes we did. Um, and we had a sister publication that did a lot more of that. But, you know, there's no denying that the, the criticism got more attention. And I, I didn't always know if my refusal to dignify the stupidity with detailed critiques and, um, you know, cutting remarks as um, some of my more famous predecessors had done was, was the right choice. <laughs> I still don't know if it... <laughs> I wasn't thinking only of you, but also of RJN back when he was still a Lutheran. So, but I, I, I really don't... I don't know. All, all I knew is that the incredible temptation and attraction of of sarcasm and snarkiness and cutting down and exposing folly and stupidity. And my God, there is so much of it, including in the church. But do I do we what where where and how do we properly rebut that? And I think I think 
even now, compared to when I started at Lutheran Forum in 2007, any kind of critique and rebuttal almost automatically is like giving a gold medal to the person you're critiquing. And so I am very cautious. There's a couple times you've you've wanted to, to you know, call out um, those who seem to will destruction upon the church from within the church. And I'm just very cautious to give them any more attention. It seems... It seems too validating that what they have to say is worth saying. And in a, a with when with attention being the most precious commodity now, I just don't want to direct any more attention towards somebody with those kind of things. And if, if that's what people want, then they can go there. They don't need to get it from me too. But I, I'm I'm not entirely sure that's the right call, I guess. No, I think it, it's ba- I think what you're saying is basically right to a degree, and there's a line that is crossed when it's no longer right. And I think basically what I would summarize what you're saying is ignore the fools. Don't take the bait. (laughs) Don't give them the attention. And just keep pursuing your own positive mission and and ministry. Um, This is a kind of a, a soft version of shunning, a soft version of the minor excommunication, the minor ban. Uh, where you uh, where someone is being foolish and disruptive, and uh, you you po- follow the policy that you're saying that you don't give them uh, any more fuel for their fire. Uh, the line that's crossed though, Sarah, is when the fool is damaging and scandalizing the community, um, or deceiving the community in a way that uh, is uh, bringing destruction to the community. Uh, that's where you have to finally take a stand and exercise your your own pastoral authority, uh, not only in your own congregation, but vis-a-vis the wider church. And that's where, uh, again, you don't have to uh, indulge in the snarkiness and sarcasm at which I excelled when I was the editor of Lutheran Forum <laughs> so many years ago. You know, uh, well-roared young lion, you know, that, uh, um, but it, it, you know, it didn't, uh, in hindsight, uh, I failed uh, to persuade people, uh, sufficient numbers of people with that approach. And uh, uh, I've kind of grown away from it uh, uh, over the years. But I do think it's still necessary at times when the community is being hurt, that those who see the aggression and see the victims have to put themselves in between the aggression and the victim. Oof, it's just, uh, you know, also in the the weird media environment, it's really hard to know where that space actually is. And um, because so much of our communication is actually impersonal and, you know, public but performative, um, (laughs) I, I can see how to do that in, in the congregation and in the family and among, you know, friends and interlocutors. It's much harder to see how to do that in a public space that's shooting in every direction at once. Yeah, and I don't think social media is a very good way to do it. I mean, uh, no, uh, I, no, that's a very bad way to do it. No, I, I mean, finally... Sarah, you come up here with the question of you of self limitation, um, and that that you have to limit yourself, because even in a righteous cause, you can be unrighteously zealous, and and you have to 
tr- trust that the the authentic act of bearing witness in uh, or taking a stand in a conflict uh, will uh, have its role to play in God's economy of things. And if you transgress those lines, uh, uh, and you can transgress them also by cowardly silence, I would hasten to mention. Uh, if you transgress those lines, uh, you bring dishonor to the righteous cause for which you're standing. Yeah. Like we uh, uh, rediscovered in the epistle of James, the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. <laughs> yep. Yeah, very but, um, good. But the... The cowardice of man also does not bring about the righteousness of God. I guess the uh, the the question for the true conscience in private prayer before the Lord is is show me show me Lord the the difference between patiency on your time and your ways and cowardice on my part. That's Reinhold Niebuhr's Serenity Prayer. Oh. Do, you, do you know? <laughs> yeah, do you know that? Yeah. Yeah. Th- sure. Sure. Yeah. Of course. Right. Okay. The grace to know the difference. Right. And the grace to know the difference. Yeah. Well, and that brings us back also to Sarah Coakley, as I mentioned earlier, that there's no formulas for these kind of things. We've we've mentioned some standards and some guidelines and some basic Christian uh, convictions about uh, uh, speaking the truth in love. Um, And uh, then it finally comes down to the conscience uh, quorum deo in relation to God. And uh, when one ventures and ventures in faith also with the realization that one might be wrong and there's no guarantees that you won't be. Yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. I guess maybe where, where I'm at right now is the realization that you can't talk anyone out of their delusions. But I do think that people who live in lies and delusions start to fail as human beings from the inside out. And that's when you're you're ready, uh, preferably without shame, <laughs> but definitely with truth, even if the truth is rather painful, when people are ready to walk out of the delusion. And I guess... I guess uh, I feel more of a calling to be to be waiting on the other side of the delusion than trying to talk people out of the delusion because I don't have it's, any. Yeah, it's just like dealing with a, an addicted loved one, you know, that's got a drug or alcohol problem. And, you know, you, I, I guess part of the wisdom there is that you don't ever cooperate with the delusion. You softly and gently are a reality principle vis-a-vis the delusion, and you don't cooperate with it. But you cannot uh, argue a deluded person out of their delusion or bully bully them. Yeah. Right, right. Well, that was pretty sobering, but I feel slightly less desperately stuck than I did when we started. So. Well, you've, you've learned that your fiction are apocalyptic parables. That's a great takeaway from this episode. Yeah, well, actually, that that kind of it also helps me think about how how to process and writing things that I have seen more recently that I'm I, I need to speak about but can't but will not expose anyone. <laughs> so, uh, right. yes. Hmm. All right, I'm going to be chewing on that one. All right, well, thanks, Dad. This was a good conversation, and I hope it's helpful to those who have been listening in. Uh, me too. Okay. 
Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.